This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. We all experience anxiety. Regardless of how bad it can feel, anxiety is part of what makes us human and may not necessarily be a bad thing. According to psychologist, author, and anxiety researcher Tracy Dennis Tawari, that uncomfortable feeling of uncertainty can be productive. In Dr. Dennis Tawari's work and writing, she addresses both generalized anxiety, which we all face, and anxiety disorders, when our anxious reactions and feelings prevent us from functioning effectively. In this episode, somatic and transpersonal psychotherapist Deanna Jimenez talks with Dr. Dennis Tawari about her latest book, Future Tense. They explore looking at anxiety in a new way to offer hope to those suffering from it, along with a way forward to better managing anxiety to spark creativity and joy for a more productive life. This episode was recorded during a live online event on June 2nd, 2022. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. How are you, Dr. Tracy? Oh, of course. Call me Tracy. It's so great to see you, Diana. And it's so nice to see your face since we just talked the other day and we just had one channel of communication. Now we have more. It's really nice to see you. Right. Well, I'm really excited to dive into your book that I thoroughly enjoyed because I've had many dances with many iterations of anxiety. <laughs> so maybe we begin there. What personal experiences brought you or drew you to write this book? You know, I've um, I've been a scientist for for twenty years, um, and you know, I am a clinical psychologist. And I actually officially became a clinical psychologist on September eleventh, two thousand and one. Wow! So yeah, so be September eleventh. I'm a New Yorker. I've been a New Yorker for over twenty years, and so I got my degree. You know, I became this official mental health professional on this really you know, this, this day that changed mm-hmm. everything for the world. And so in many ways though, as, as difficult as our, our shared collective experience of that was, I also felt really more impassionate than ever to, to focus on mental health. I said, okay, this is the field that mm-hmm. I need to be in. This is the time that we need to really make treatment accessible, really understand the science really lower the barriers and, and, and destigmatize mental health. So, so I put my head down for 20 years <laughs> that way it kind of went by in a flash. Um, and, and really, and, and was very joyful in this life of, uh, as an academic. And, and it was only really about four or five years ago that I start, started chafing at the walls of academia because I was looking up and looking around hmm. and I knew we had great solutions. We, because I knew this, I knew the science. I had mm-hmm. um, contributed to some of it. Um, I know we have, um, you know, the clinical evidence is that we also have amazing wellness practices. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for a scientist like me, I thought, okay, 
wellness has even moved beyond just self-help. It's actually science-based now. We have medicate, we have medications for people for whom that's, that's needed at that time, but yet anxiety disorders continued to be on the rise. And that was a focus of my work, emotional health and anxiety Mm -hmm. and mental health in general, mental health disorders in particular were also on the rise. So all of this that I devoted my life to my professional life, to wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And so I took a step back and I started to really think about what have we, what are, what have we told people about mental health? Because in a prior life, I was an artist, actually, I was a musician before becoming a psychologist. And I know the power of story from that perspective. And I re and I relearned the power of story as, as a psychologist, where so much of what we believe about our possibilities and our mental health and our potential shapes what we can be, you know, what we, and you know, and, and so I just really asked myself the question, what are we telling people about anxiety in particular? And that was the starting point for my book. I love how you won the creativity or the, the storytelling and what are we telling ourselves, which shapes our experience. Um, And, you know, truth be told, there are many books um, written about addressing anxiety. So I want to maybe just see, like, what would you say, what is at the heart of this book? What do you want people to really understand? I, I, at the heart of this book is the idea that we mental health professionals have to own up to some terrible mistakes that we've made. Mm -hmm. And I see the heart of that mistake being that we have convinced people that, um, broadly that mental health equals the absence of emotional suffering Hmm. or discomfort and specific to anxiety, that anxiety in particular is best thought of as dangerous and a a disease. Mm -hmm. And of course, as mental health professionals, this comes from some very good intentions that if we medicalize mental health, we can be better able to treat it and we can get resources for it. And there's, so there's all this great motivation, but what happens when you think about a human emotion that's on a spectrum as a disease. Well, a couple, a couple things happen. One is that you start to fear and revile and reject it. Um, okay. You avoid it and try to eradicate it. Like you would any disease, cancer, COVID. Right. And, uh, and so, and so that's one thing. So the avoidance and the destruction of that experience is, is one thing. The second thing is that you start to think of it as a malfunction. So when you're anxious, Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, it's a failure of, of happiness, of mental health. And what do you do with things that are malfunctions? You fix them. Mm-hmm. And these beliefs about when applied to anxiety in particular, set us up for failure. They set us up to actually not for success. Let's put it this way. Sometimes, you know, they, they set us up to not succeed at what is what I believe is an essential feature and aspect of being human, which is to experience anxiety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you said in your book, the problem isn't anxiety, but our coping mechanisms. And you're really speaking to that right now. It's when we can, if I could use the word like reframe mm-hmm. how we are using or expand how we're using anxiety, we then have choice. And with that choice, we then have possibilities of how to navigate it, use it as a supportive tool versus a hindrance or something to get rid of. That's beautifully put. And and you can have that perspective and that can still um, allow for the fact of anxiety disorders. So Mm -hmm. you can say, 
Yeah. If you if you treat all anxiety as a disease that you eradicate and avoid and suppress, well, it makes you avoid anxiety, which is right. a, literally a recipe for making anxiety worse. Kind of like the whole, you know, the old uh, white bear effect. Don't think of a white bear. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it's, right. that's a silly example, but it really, you know, the more you try to shove it down and suppress it, the more it roars back stronger than ever. That's how anxiety works. So, so the disease model makes us avoid more. It also makes us miss opportunities, as you say, to expand our view of what anxiety mm-hmm. might be. So that, you know, and, and what, what I know as an emotion scientist and, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, but being an emotion scientist and actually devoting my work to understanding well, what is an emotion? How do we mm-hmm. measure it? How do we fail to measure it? You know, how do we, what, what, how can it help us? How does it get us in our way? Well, if we start to think of emotion on this, uh, excuse me, if we start to think of anxiety on this full spectrum of being an emotion, like a dimmer switch instead of a light switch on and off, Mm -hmm. then again, as you said, all sorts of possibilities open themselves up. Right, right. And when you, um, I guess what leads me to the next is, you say when we're on this spectrum, then possibilities open up. And one thing you speak to is um, hope. And I really want to just bring that in, you know, in the midst of all that we are experiencing collectively and individually right now, you speak of hope and anxiety as two sides of the same coin. Can you say more? That is one of my favorite things about anxiety. It's kind of what made me decide to write this book in a way, uh, because I, I believe this with all my heart and the science also backs me up, <laughs> which so... <laughs> So to, uh, to understand why I would say that, and, and again, in, when you struggle with debilitating anxiety, it's so hard to wrap your head around that. But, but, um, but, um, but let me try to explain what I mean. So yeah. first, first of all, anxiety, we equate it with fear. Mm-hmm. We think, oh, we're, and we often use the words interchangeably so that anxiety is fight flight, just like fear is. And we can even say, oh, maybe it's helpful because it is protective in that way. Mm-hmm. But fear is an emotion that's very distinct from hope, uh, from uh, anxiety. Fear is what we feel when we know there is certain and present danger. Mm-hmm. It is someone, there's, there's, a, there's a, a snake about to bite you. And it's there and, it's re- and there's no uncertainty about it. So it roots you to the present moment. And mm-hmm. it does prepare you to act. For the, the three Fs, the freezing, fight, or flight. That's mm-hmm. what our bodies prime us to do when we're fearful. But anxiety has nothing to do about the present moment. Anxiety is all about the future. And it's, you know, from a definitional perspective, it's apprehension about the uncertain future. So what does that mean? That means that in that future that is uncertain, which is all futures, (laughs) even one second from now, um, that in that future, something bad could happen, but something good could also happen. That's what uncertainty means. It's not despair. It's that there there are these possibilities. And when you're anxious, what it's actually, it's, it's the bridge between the now where you are and these possibilities, both good and bad of the future. And so what it, once you are oriented through anxiety to that uncertainty, it then prepares you to avert the bad and work mm-hmm. hard to make the good things come true in both the, the cognitive aspects of anxiety, the behavioral and the biological. It's really far beyond just this fight flight response 
It, mm-hmm. it brings all these other aspects of being human to the table that we don't often think about. I, I love how you just described that. And as you were saying that, what was um, with the fight flight, there's this like in my body, it was this like narrowness and you speak yeah. around the pupil and the eye. So there's this narrowness around protection and safety and the hope, which is also looking into the future, into the uncertainty. There's an expansion, a curiosity, a yeah. room for opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And anxiety feels, I mean, even the word for anxiety is from, you know, the Latin and proto-Europe, you know, proto-European words for choking. So anga, the A-N-G-H, anga. Yeah, it's it's a very old, it's even Indo-Europe. I mean, it's sort of this very old. So there is that aspect to it because anxiety can also um, focus us. Mm -hmm. It, 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 It can narrow our attention like fear. Anxiety helps us persist because it prepares us to keep working for that future, mm-hmm. that hopeful possibility. So, so it's at the same time that it narrows, it expands us. And that's why it's so different than fear. And, and when a, a, a conversation I had with um, someone once, they were saying, you know, I've always been told or thought of myself that I'm a person who mm-hmm. struggles with anxiety. I think I might've shared this with you when we spoke who um, struggles with anxiety, but that's never fit how I thought of myself. And mm-hmm. what I realize from what you're saying is that I'm actually a person who struggles with hope. And I just loved that because mm-hmm. it, it, again, it doesn't disavow the real suffering that extreme anxiety, debilitating anxiety can cause, but it also teaches us that we have all sorts of anxiety. And sometimes because it, 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 it capitalizes on this unique what I like to call a triumph of human evolution, this ability to think about the future, to Mm -hmm. simulate it, something that hasn't happened to plan and prepare it at, you know, it actually, we could never be anxious if we couldn't think about the future and take this, this incredible skill that human beings and maybe only human beings have to this ability and to use it to, to bridge the gap between where we are now and where we want to be and to care about our future. So it has all of those parts to it. Right. The spectrum, the um, this unique, special ability we have. If I can share my past career, I was a, I planned corporate meetings and conferences. And I never called what I was experiencing in the planning process anxiety. It was creating, it was actually probably in my job description to be in that future of uncertainty and through the details, looking through detail after detail of the planning, I am then preparing for possibilities in the future. So when I think of, you know, like the spectrum or the nuances in anxiety, I can see like how it can run amok and also how it is like at the root of manifesting. That's such, oh, I, I might steal that phrase, although I will cite you. <laughs> it's at the root of manifesting because yeah. it is alchemical. It is transformational mm-hmm. when we don't cut it off because we've decided it's so dangerous and destructive for us. Right. Now, now the time, and, I, and I, I've been, I meant to say this earlier, I do want to distinguish between anxiety and an anxiety disorder. So, okay. we, so we can, because, because I think people hear this and, you know, I think, um, 
they often feel that their their pain isn't acknowledged if if we talk about this. And I really want to I, I want to address that and think I about appreciate that you saying out, that, yeah. out loud because I really I, I I've devoted my life to to trying to help anxiety disorders. So that's yeah. always in the back of my mind. Um, so anxiety, you can have frequent and intense anxiety every day, but that doesn't mean you'll be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. The only time that that a psychologist or psychiatrist or therapist will diagnose it is when the ways that you are coping with that anxiety are getting in the way of living a full life. It's called functional impairment. Right. And those ways of coping are typically characterized by avoidance and suppression. So if we're up, we have social anxiety, um, you know, we, we start to, you know, not go to, if we're a kid, we don't go to school anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, We just can't take the pressure of it. Um, And, you know, if we have a job and there's, and we know that we have a big presentation coming up, we call in sick and, you know, week after week of doing that, you start to risk losing your job. So it's that way of coping um, that, that is really getting your way. I wouldn't be doing you know, having wonderful conversations on zoom with interesting people. If I let my nervousness, you you know, so it's a coping issue and, 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 or sometimes it's, we, we turn to substances maybe to dull our pain or, you know, there are a host, whole host of ways. And after a while, it just, it just, you can't sustain the the joyful life you want to. And that, and that's when someone will say, Hey, listen, anxiety is getting in your way and you, and a diagnosis might be helpful, but really what they're saying is that there's a vicious cycle happening that needs to be broken between your experiences of anxiety and how you're managing it. Mm-hmm. Now we can have so many tough things that are going on in our, on in our life that the cards are stacked against us. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, we could be the best copers in the world and we're just, you know, we're just, you know, and that right. balance, it's always that balance. So, so to say that, anxiety is still an emotion that can help us does not, you know, does not take away from the fact that when we get into those cycles and all of us are capable of it, we need to seek that support. And there's a whole range of things we can do. What I, why I think it's still important to talk about anxiety as a useful emotion is that the key to any of these therapeutic approaches is typically to engage with your anxiety and to stop avoiding it. It's literally gold standard treatment approach. It's in CBT, which is a very common treatment approach for anxiety disorders. It's called um, exposure and response prevention. So you expose yourself to what is causing anxiety. So say it's um, your your boss judging you at work or people judging you and their social anxiety. And the the response that you prevent is not going to work anymore. Mm -hmm. And dropping off from life and never seeing friends and doing these avoidant things. And so... So, so when we are thinking of anxiety in a way that primes us to avoid more and reject anxiety more, the message there is that that's actually keeping us potentially from benefiting from treatments and all these ways that we're seeking to heal ourselves or to seek healing. So that's why I also think that never to blame or to, um, to say, oh, you're just not thinking about it the right way, <laughs> you know, oh, right, that's why you're having right. anxiety disorder, but rather all of us can benefit when we look for the ways that anxiety can serve us where we can own it. So it doesn't mm-hmm. own us. And that's really the heart of my message as well. I'm just, I'm even taking a breath right there and appreciating that we did back up in order to really name that because that can sometimes be part of a spiral, right? Is that like, I, I'm what I'm hearing you say is that when there is the turning towards anxiety, one, it can be seeing it as an opportunity for manifesting. Another can be, I need help right now. 
like, and there are steps. So I think it all kind of is turning towards and it can look in very different ways at very different times in many people's lives. And so not to eliminate um, that as an option because we are, yeah, discussing anxiety and these other possibilities. That's so beautifully the way you put that because part of um, turning to anxiety is knowing that, you know, if we let go of the disease story, we need another story, right? Mm -hmm. We need another story. And what if we started to treat anxiety uh, more like we do say fitness or -hmm. physical health where um, let's take fitness as a first example. There are skills to be built, Mm -hmm. Um, skills that require endurance and stress and strain and sometimes failing. And so if you're, you know, if you're, uh, I'm not much of an athlete, but if you're training to be, you know, a marathon runner, you're going to have some good running days and some bad, mm-hmm. but you need to tune in to how your body's feeling. You need to know when you're pushing yourself too hard, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're, you know, you need to say, oh, wait a second, um, that is actually too much. And I need to make sure I stretch and I do these things. Or right. you can say, oh, wait, that's a healthy discomfort because that means that's how it feels when my muscles are getting that good burn. And anxiety is the same way because these are skills. If, if anxiety is energy and something to channel, and a way of manifesting, it's like a wave. Mm-hmm. And a wave can drown us, but we can also swim and we can surf mm-hmm. and we can and we can be nourished by that wave and we can ride it forward. And so if we start to turn to anxiety in that way, I just think it will lead to so many more helpful things and minimize the unhelpful things that we might do in this, this world that we really have a lot of anxiety present and a lot of reasons to be anxious, right. to be anxious. Right. Um, it made me think of, uh, uh, saying that I'm often reminding my students is there is no failure. There's only feedback. So if we can see it as feedback, then we can be with it, utilize it, use the highest choice. We can like be in choice around it. And so, um, yeah. And anxiety, oh, I was just going to say, I, lo- I love that because I love, I think failure is one of the great human skills to learn. It's, it's that's really when we're in the messy work of being human and where there's real potential. Um, and there's this great um, concept that Patrick Gaudreau, who's a Canadian psychologist, uh, he coined the term excellencism. Mm. And people, I, we've talked about this is a, um, and people who are more anxious tend to be excellencists. Now, the best way to think about excellencism is sort of it's the light side to the dark side of perfectionism. Now, perfectionism we know is just toxic. It's this unrealistic, impossible standard of flawlessness. Mm-hmm. No, it's always we're always going to fail eventually, and it actually leads to worse outcomes. So there, the law, the law of diminishing returns. When you're a perfectionist, mm-hmm. you don't know when good enough is great. You don't know when to stop, and you often are inefficient. Don't get work done. And don't actually reach your full potential because you're just striving after this impossible goal. Mm-hmm. And it's associated with many more negative mental health consequences. Right. Excellencism, on the other hand, is striving, having a tendency to strive for excellence, but knowing that you're going to fail along the way mm-hmm. and knowing that you have to fail along the way in order oh, to get process. to excellence, right? And realizing and believing, and this is the other part that I think takes practice, believing you have the capability to be excellent. Oh, that's a big <laughs> that's one, a, right? That's right. a big one. But people who are more anxious on average actually are better excellences. 
and they're and they're more and and studies that Gaudreau has done, he shows that people who are excellencists are actually more creative and innovative. So if you do standard tests of problem solving and creativity, and you look at the quality and quantity of creative output, excellencists who are also a little anxious, mm-hmm. they just come out, they come out a little better. They come out quite a bit better in some circumstances. So this is a way where I feel like when we're riding that wave, it re- these feelings that are sometimes so difficult and yes, debilitating, And sometimes we just have to, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, don't Mm -hmm. open your arms to anxiety. Sometimes it's time to say, okay, I need a break. But, Mm -hmm. but if we have that sort of a relationship, like we do with an ally, we need to negotiate with these things are possible. Everything that I've learned and believe over the past, uh, I'm pushing 50 now, all these years, really, I believe that with all my heart. Mm -hmm. Another breath right here, not only for myself, but all of the people in the YouTube audience. I'll, a shout out to all the excellent cis uh, <laughs> out there <laughs> just to allow the space for that to soak in yeah, because that is so yeah, real, right? Yeah. That, 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 um, perfectionism, excellentism. I love that reframe or that new word in my vocabulary. And again, how to use something that might be perceived as heavy or negative and how can it work for us? That's right. I'm really wanting to, um, one thing I really appreciated in your writing is how you look like when we talk about leaning in on anxiety, leaning towards difficult topics and like, let's be there. Let's understand it. You cover um, topics around global pandemic, viral misinformation, political upheaval, um, climate change and eco-anxiety. You just speak to these things. And so there's something around like arresting in my nervous system where it's like, oh, we're not going to brush over it. And that just feels really important, similar to like, hey, let's go back and let's talk about um, the pathology, not pathologizing, but like the the spectrum and diagnosing. Um, so I wonder if there's something that we could speak to the topics of aliveness. What's alive for me right now are not just the things that you were speaking of in the book that are alive, like in our news today around the, the Texas shooting at the school, around the, um, the shooting in East Coast. It's both centered around guns, but I'm just really wanting to bring that into the top topic because that really brings anxiety for me. Yeah, I feel my throat closing up right now mm-hmm. thinking about those shootings. I mean, I've been... It's, uh, you know, um, you don't have to have a kid to feel, uh, I'm specifically speaking, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about um, your body. Um, um, you don't have to have children to just feel this collective tragedy uh, that we are a society that accommodates the slaughter of children on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's very, you know, and it's hard to know how to talk about that at all. And certainly how to talk about it with kids, because what's our job as parents mm-hmm. um, and as community members and as aunties and uncles and everything in between? Um, it's to comfort our kids, right? Or uh, make them know that we're, we're going to keep them safe. Right. But kids know liars when they see them. And we're a society of liars right now. So it's very, you know, so I think a lot about what I'm, you know, how do I practice what I'm preaching in this book when it comes to something so raw and painful. And we can have all of, you know, we can have those conversations on so many 
topics in our life. You know, I think about the painful conversations we've had about social justice. I think about the painful conversations we've had um, about climate change, painful and necessary. And so when I think about what I, what I believe about anxiety, what I believe science also tells us about anxiety, it's that the only way out is through. So then how do we create safe enough spaces where we can um, respect people's um, histories, um, mm-hmm. people who, you know, I do think we overuse the word trauma, but there is real trauma. There is absolutely no doubt about that um, to, to respect people's, tr- you know, their trauma or, or things that feel like trauma to people. You know, how, how do we say, hey, we have to have these very difficult conversations and you may feel pain because of what you've been through. I, I wanted to talk, and I talk about this in the book. I want to talk a little bit about the absolutely what I feel is our responsibility and the crucial need for these conversations from the perspective of the history of safe spaces. And so we talk about safe spaces now as, as really places where we can be free of, of clearly of, of hate, and 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 um, prejudice of all sorts, bigotry of all sides, and that is crucial. But we also have come to think of these safe spaces as places where we are free of emotional discomfort and opinions that we might disagree with or that we feel because they're painful might do harm to us. Now, this is a very difficult conversation. I think there are lots of constructive debates about this. I will say that the history of safe spaces gives us a lens here to think about it. Kurt Lewin, who was one of the fathers of social psychology, um, he um, was doing work post-World War II. And he worked in a lot of corporate environments, actually. And um, at the time, um, it wasn't the NAACP. It was another organization that was fighting for racial justice as well as um, fighting against anti-Semitic hate. And, um, and they approached Kurt Lewin because he had been, he is one of, also one of the fathers of action research, really applying principles of social psychology to positive social change in action. So, so they went to him and they said, listen, there is a lot of prejudice that's poisoning the, uh, the workplace. And we have some things, good positive changes that are happening, but uh, people of color, people of Jewish backgrounds and people of all, you know, all sorts of people who uh, are different in some way, are, are, they're, they're blocks and there's prejudice and there's pain and we need to deal with this. What do we do, Kurt Lewin? You, you're the expert in this. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we need to do two things. We need to do sensitivity training and create safe spaces. But, but check this. What did he mean by that? What he, a safe space in the, in Kurt Lewin, in the Lewin's terms is a place where everyone comes together in a, in a community at work in this case and talks about the prejudice they're seeing and the prejudice that they are even fearful they're perpetuating. So if I'm a boss um, in this workplace environment, I'm going to come and say, hey, um, I need this space where I, I know that I'm not going to be judged or reviled, or, or, but, but I need to admit to something that I really um, want to change. I believe that the men who work for me, I'm a woman, I'm a boss, I believe that the men are not as smart as me. And I know this is sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, I just find myself, do, I, I, I want to change, but I want to, I want to get this out in the open. Mm-hmm. And so people would have raw, painful conversations. And, and the, but the key to this is that the person who, who was committed to change and also could acknowledge that there was something wrong and maybe they couldn't articulate it quite well, but they were wanted to do it mm-hmm. would not, would be able to, would be supported in that goal. And the people who were 
maybe feeling the tar- so the men in that you know situation in that example the people who felt that they were the target would know that they were free of hateful prejudice prejudicial experiences but it would still be a very difficult conversation mm-hmm. and sensitivity training was teaching people to allow those conversations to happen it wasn't being tiptoeing mm-hmm. it was going right into it but in a way that was respectful and when they did research on these safe spaces they they found that they led to transformational change on the individual level and even starting to make change on institutional levels. So fast forward. And safe spaces today are really nothing like that because we emphasize the safe aspect of it with the best of intentions to not cause someone further harm or and their vulnerable, vulnerable communities. And we're very aware of that. But I think we've perhaps have gone so far in that direction that we're forgetting the power of leaning into the sharp points of these difficult conversations and Mm. trusting each other that we actually can work for change together. And I think that that might be a big opportunity cost that our view of mental health and emotional discomfort is actually making worse because we believe that emotional discomfort might cause us damage. Mm -hmm. And I do not believe in almost all cases, I do not believe that that is really the way that humans work. Yeah, that is so intriguing because as you were talking, I'm following this researcher's experience and, you know, and the uh, curiosities come up for me around science that now has come up around. And I don't know the science specifically, but just how the visceral impact of trauma or the perpetual um what the mundane extreme environmental stressors of racism. And so mm-hmm. how, like I'm trying to, and if you have a, a thought on this, but like really trying to, for me right now, I'm trying to untangle how there is this study and this practice and safe spaces and how we dance with, how how we become, use the word anti-fragility or fragility, like how we can mm. dance with that while also honoring like, how historical racism and how these things really we're finding do live through in generations and impact us. Right. And that's the, I mean, that's the dance. And, you know, when it comes to, to trauma, it's a real, it's a very, it's a really interesting double-edged sword because Mm there is great work on the absolute necessity of, of acknowledging that trauma and that it is transgenerational and it's deep and it's, you know, so, we can acknowledge that and also acknowledge that there's science that really calls into question that you're traumatized. Everything is going to be worse mm-hmm. for you uh, not to, and that, and you can still, because it, igno- it ignores this notion of resilience or anti-fragility and, and it doesn't have to change your view of the trauma and that that is, that means, you know, that that is unacceptable, but then to also say that human beings can also work through and come out the other side, mm-hmm. acknowledging the trauma, but also growing. And, and there's a way to have that conversation that I think the mm-hmm. first stage of that, much like, you know, in, in some ways, my book is just, just take one step. It's just one, you know, just do this one thing and then see how everything else works for you. It's sort of like, that. it's like, just right. change your, be a little curious about anxiety, try it out. And see how, and I think it's the same when we talk about these these traumas. And to say, 
you know, I have something I need to say. It's not, um, I, I know it's wrong and I want to say it and I want to work through it. I think that might be the key part. I know it's you know? wrong. So there's a, yeah. And so you acknowledge, mm-hmm. but people are so afraid to acknowledge mm-hmm. because, because right now it's not okay to be part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And what we don't realize is that acknowledging that you're part of the problem can be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my perspective. Now we can also in that same breath say, well, wait a second, you have unique privileges. You have, and we, th- I think about this a lot with anxiety and talking about how anxiety can be an ally. Some people may say, well, listen, you've had numerous privileges. You have numerous supports mm-hmm. and numerous resources that a lot of people may not have. So for you, it's easy. So mm-hmm. how do I, who is in this XYZ circumstance, whatever it may be, I am debilitated by this anxiety because I don't have your privilege. So mm-hmm. what do we say to that? Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't have an answer, but what I do say is we have to talk about that's that's exactly that's what we the need answer, to talk about. right? That's let's the answer. lean in on it, yeah. And to say, in. and to say, you know what? Maybe it's condescending to say if I'm here saying, oh no, you have anxiety and a disease, and you have a lot of stuff working against you. So how can we possibly expect anything of you? There's a flip mm-hmm. side to that disease story. There's mm-hmm. a flip side to saying I'm traumatized and therefore I am that trauma. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a cost to all of these potentially helpful ideas, and I think we have to we have to lean into that nuance. Mm-hmm. I, I was talking to a tech entrepreneur not too long ago, and tech entrepreneurs are very interesting. If you talk to them, they have all sorts of ideas about their godlike godlike powers. <laughs> like, <laughs> and and they and and we were talking and we were talking about people who are from under resourced communities, mm-hmm. and we were talking about how technology. Um, can be, uh, you know, it obviously can be something we get lost in and was not designed for human well-being, uh, especially mm. social media, and can be a crutch. And, you know, oh, we just put our kids on these social media, they get sucked into it. And he was saying, well, you know, imagine your mom, a single mom from an under-resourced community, and you have to work two jobs. Yeah, of course, you're going to put your kid on the, the iPad all day. And how are we there? You know, we, how can we judge them? And it's them, of course, it's, it's a, it's a, those people, it's a, those people kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Right. Right. And so he said, and he's saying that, and of course, that's just what, you know, so we just have to stop, you know, thinking it's so easy and we just have to stop judging them. And I, and I said to him, I said, that is the most condescending thing because you're essentially saying, oh, because so then you're what we're calling a bad mom Mm -hmm. and we can't expect anything more of you Hmm. because, because of that. And I feel like we do that sometimes. So, so then it gives you excuse not to actually give that person resources or to say, wait a second, there's an opportunity for change mm-hmm. or, Hey, wait a second. Maybe we have the system that's broken <laughs> and we have to, so it becomes, it's utilized in ways that I actually feel like when we actually talk about it more, we can break through some of those dis- destructive ways that these, 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 these ways of actually supporting people are sometimes used. And I, I just feel that mental health is, is we're, 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 it's part of that dialogue as well. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. I don't have any answers, right. but I think we have to talk about it. Everything you're saying, like there, it's not a period at the end of any, of it. it is like <laughs> the start of a whole nother dialogue. And I'm just wanting to acknowledge that, that 
but what I am hearing is remaining curious, expanding the um, possibilities. And kind of when you're saying the fight flight, when we're saying like kind of narrows, anxiety kind of narrows that when, as soon as we have the answer, we eliminate the possibility of anything else. And you're really speaking to like all the topics we've just like rushed through. Which I know that was, like, that was my fault. That was a little much. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, it's important in these spaces when we have them to be able to open them up, say like, hey, we, we're, we're talking about it. We're still okay. We can take breaths. We can slow down. But um, yeah, I'm just really holding that there's just power in leaning in. Thank you, Diana. You know, your reflections and your interpretations are really, really helping me think through why did my mind go from talking about anxiety to talking about the entire human condition or, mm-hmm. or stories that we tell about that human condition mm-hmm. and the trickiness of acknowledging pain and wanting to end it, but also knowing that it's it's actually a feature of being human. Mm-hmm. So how do we, how do we fight for change, but also acknowledge pain? And that's mm-hmm. that's essential. That's the essential tension of my book, and mm-hmm. that in every page, in every chapter, that I I feel that I'm I'm navigating. And what I, what I try to do in that navigation is to surprise people with things about anxiety that they might not mm-hmm. have been told before. Or even that we scientists don't know that much about th- things like um, in just the past decade or so, we've realized that when you're anxious, it doesn't just trigger your stress, the like fight flight system. It does, mm-hmm. you know, uh, your, you know, your, your autonomic, you know, uh, nervous mm-hmm. system, but it actually also increases oxytocin, which is the social bonding hormone, mm-hmm. which primes us to seek social support and reach out to our loved ones. So that means that anxiety contains within itself this, this, this almost its own solution because mm-hmm. social connection is one of the best ways to manage anxiety, to, mm-hmm. to, 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 to use our social resources, whatever they are, or create new ones. Anxiety also increases levels of dopamine in our brain. And dopamine is not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's not just addiction. It actually is a, as a neurotransmitter, it actually, it, it, it's like a little shuttlecock that communicates among different areas of the brain and allows areas of the brain to work efficiently and in coordination when we pursue goals, things we really want. Wow. So, so, so anxiety, while it also is protective and maybe we feel the butterflies in the show, you know, it's also preparing us to act. And when you, and when we teach people that there's a beautiful study that came out of um, Harvard in, in 2013, Jameson and colleagues, um, where they taught socially anxious people with a the social anxiety disorder diagnosed. Um, they had them come in and ask them to do something that's sheer kryptonite for socially anxious people, which is to give an impromptu public speech wow. without any time for preparation in front of a panel of judges who were taught to like be like this <laughs> with their arms crossed and looking Aww. very judgmental. And, and they were just about to be thrown into it. But half of them were told, You're going, your heart's going to race. You're going to feel that sweat, but that is actually your body preparing to perform. It's your heart's pumping blood to your brain with oxygen so you can focus and think clearly. And here's some studies to show why that's the case. And here's evolutionary theory that shows how anxiety evolved. And so they were taught to think of anxiety as this potential ally that was preparing them. 
and the other half of the folks weren't. And what mm-hmm. happened? They give the speech, and the people who learned to anticipate anxiety was going to prepare them had lower blood pressure, mm-hmm. calmer heart rates, and they performed better. So their bodies looked like people who were primed to be, you know, perform at their best instead of people who were burdened and stressed out and overwhelmed. So again, this, this shift, even when mm-hmm. we suffer from clinical anxiety disorders, like, like this group of folks did, these are shifts that we can do. We can practice, we can get better at this. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of, that's the kind of boop, just like a little, like a little, burr, little perspective shift, like right. 45 degrees or, you know, I, I think that these are powerful and we can all do it. You, you made that full circle because we began speaking around as we were expanding the perception of anxiety that it, it increases options or yeah, possibilities. We also began at the beginning around the flip side of anxiety and hope. And you just came right back around, <laughs> right? I, I started life as an artist. That's why my brain works that way. And I just had to train myself to be a scientist <laughs> and think linearly. Right. I'm, glad I, I'm glad I came back. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, um, We have a bit more time. And so one thing that was, that's really was alive for me when you spoke was um, being anxious the right way. You speak in your book around being anxious the right way. And so I wonder if we can begin moving into like, okay, we've really spoken around like these, the complexity of anxiety. Your book also shares like how to um, some steps or some framework on how to really support anxiety. wonder if we can begin there. I'd love that. Um, so that is a quote from a, a, a very old philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. People have very strong feelings about Kierkegaard, but he was the patron saint of anxiety in many ways. <laughs> he wrote a book about anxiety 180 years ago. And he says in that book, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. So I'm just sort of picking up these, and many people have, there's little gems that have been dropped along the centuries. And I feel mm. like I just sort of pick it up and try and shine it up a bit and see if I can take it a little step further. But what does it mean to be, but that begs the question, okay, if anxiety is part of the human condition, what does it mean to be anxious in the right way? And in the book, you know, I sort of have a aversion to self-help books in the traditional sense. Um, and maybe these books, maybe no real self-help books are this way anymore, but it used to be that there was this feeling that there's this um, really almost toxic standard of positivity where you have 50 boxes to check off. Mm. Here's what it means to be a healthy human being or to do this right. And it's like, check, 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 check. Oh, oh I missed 23 and I missed uh, 47. And oh, I guess I'm a failure. So, mm. I, so I very mm-hmm. much, I mean, the real focus of the book is just this one act of being curious about anxiety. But as you say, in that last chapter, I do present a framework. Mm-hmm. And the framework goes something like this. I hope. If you've read this book, you'll, uh, uh, you'll con- consent to being curious about anxiety and to think for a moment that, that it might have some information to give us because all emotions are information about where we are in our world and what it means for our well-being. And um, so the very first principle, there are three, and I was raised Catholic, even though I, <laughs> I think I always will always think in threes because of that. Um, the very first one is um, um, anxiety is information listen to it. And what that means is sometimes it just means being curious. That's the first step because we're open instead of shutting it down. 
it also means that we need to give words to those feelings that are sometimes not so easy to understand because anxiety isn't just this, this little, this, you know, it's not this neat little, little box that we open up and there's our anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's messy. It's often there are other feelings that are mixed in with it, but we right. know, and we know there's so much, you know, and I'd be really interested in, in, in hearing from your perspective as, as someone who does body work as well and thinks about the somatic aspects of, of emo- I mean, emotion is in mm-hmm. our body when we give this is intellectual, but when we give words to those emotions, that's it's called emotional granularity sometimes, and 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 give it that specificity. It's actually a form of emotion regulation. It actually immediately helps us start to work with it. And I think the body work we do around emotions do exactly the same thing. They it allows us to listen to the messages so that we that that anxiety might be giving us. So it's we know okay. Sometimes it's a call to panic. But really, anxiety is a signal that tells us there's something we care about in the world. Mm-hmm. There's uncertainty. And we, and we still believe that we're in it to win it, like we have what it takes. So, so that very first principle that I outline is just you know, considering that it's information, practicing listening to it, words. I talk about cross-cultural words for anxiety and how our words for anxiety mm-hmm. shape. Thinking, you know, or maybe it's body work that allows us to connect with those feelings. But again, it's giving the inchoate, you know, mm-hmm. the, a form. And that's really, that's really the first step. Right. And then once we've listened and we've given it that chance, um, ourselves a chance, because anxiety is not outside of us, it's a feature of being human. Right. Um, then we may decide that it's not useful information. So I would never ever um tell someone, oh yeah, every experience of anxiety, you should just like white knuckle it through. <laughs> it's like, just do it. Right. And, well, right. No, actually what I'm all, all I'm saying is, well, listen to it. Yes. Always listen to it. But then you're going to sometimes realize that this is useless information that it's, or that it's too overwhelming at this mm-hmm. moment. I, you know, when I wrote this book, it was in the pandemic. Um, I, and, and, the, and in the book, I, I detail a couple um, experiences I had where I just had unmanageable anxiety. There were just things mm-hmm. going on in my life that I I could not. There's nothing I could do. Mm-hmm. And when you're and and when you're and we really feel helpless, it's very hard to know what to do with that anxiety. So I realized I have to let go of the future tense. You know this pull that anxiety mm-hmm. brings us because there's not a lot of hope right right now to find, and I need to immerse myself in the present again. So that's mm-hmm. really that second step. If it's not use, useful information, let go of anxiety. And do those things that we know to do in our lives that immerse us in the present. For right. many people, that's body work, exercise. It might be seeing your therapist who, or, or it's talking to that friend that always makes you feel like yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's music and art and dance. It's, um, I like to write poetry and, and it's very bad poetry a lot of the time, but it puts me in this completely different state of mind. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to the present. So so that's, you know, so, and to be empowered to know that we can in this um, kind of like riding that wave, we can be in the future tense. And then we do have the skills to let go of it and come back to the present. Right. Right. And, and somatically, then, you're really speaking yeah. to that. If you're in that end, like they're for whatever reason, not ready to be there, writing, dancing, the body mm-hmm. work, these are all things of feeling the soma that bring you back into the body. That's and right. that's and the coming back. And the channel, and the right, and then you can decide how is a channel because emotion is energy. 
Mm-hmm. And like any, any energy, it's neither created nor destroyed. It has to go somewhere. Right. Do you find in, in any of your background and work and the things that you think about with emotion, is this, is this connecting with some of that? Most definitely. There is so much what you're speaking to around that. Um, one thing that was coming up for me when you were speaking around the emotion, one is that, yes, emotion is energy. So the leaning in, the being curious, and without judgment, I feel like that just feels so important, mm-hmm. right? Without mm-hmm. judgment, that when I can be with this without judgment, then opens up the space for curiosity. And with the curiosity come the options. That's right. right? And that's what you're speaking yeah. to. That's right. And it's a North Star too, because um, I had just something small that happened with my son the other day. He, he had a test uh, coming up at school and he was nervous about it, but he'd studied a lot. And he said, mom, I studied, I did my work. I still feel really nervous and I'm worried. And he said, you're the expert. You wrote a book on anxiety. What should I do? He's 13. Mm-hmm. So you can, <laughs> and I said, well, um, well, first of all, um, it sounds like you care about this test. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, you know, I really do. I've done, I've worked very hard this semester and I really like math. And so I really care about it. I said, so, okay, that's amazing. It also sounds like you have prepared, but is, is, is your worry telling you that maybe there was anything you missed or, and he said, well, you know, actually there was that one type of problem that I, I kind of skimmed over because it was hard and I don't think I fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, so maybe let me study for another 10 minutes and see, see what that does. And so, so he studied and, and then, you know, so the anxiety had risen and the worry, and then he took action. And then he came back and I said, so how's your worry? How's your anxiety? And he said, well, you know, it went down as I was studying. And I said, oh, maybe that means you're on the right track. And he's like, I think it was. I think I was on the right track. Now, I should also say, because I I think that we all, like, especially psychologists who tell people how to fix everything, uh, we have to tell our fails, our fails or our like non-perfect outcomes as well. So then he goes into the test. I'm thinking, oh, he's got this. Like, yeah, I did it. I did it. <laughs> you know, I'm like a little prideful, right? So he goes, and then he comes back. He's like, mom, I panicked in the test. He's oh, like, poor baby. <laughs> but I said, well, tell me about it. And, and, and you know, his version of panicky means he might have, he's a bit, he is a perfectionist. I'm worrying on working on making him more of an excellentist, helping him find, find that. But, um, but I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, I mean, I think I got, I got X, Y, Z wrong. And I probably still, you know, I passed, but, um, but then I said, okay, so what, you know, let's, what happened? Right. He said, when I got nervous, I didn't remember to read the question. And so, so again, you know, and I'll, I'll make this story. It's a long story of a very long, but the short version is we leaned in on it more and he decided he would come up with a mantra that was, uh, that was, it was something like, um, when I panic, read the question. When I <laughs> really basic, like right? Really basic. <laughs> and and he was able to use that in the next test. And he made that. And and so he kind of it was a step up and a step down. And then it was another step up. So he rode that yeah. wave. And when we for ourselves, and, and this to all the parents out there too, when we when when we see our kids and all we want to do is protect them and help them. Yeah. And God, we don't want them to suffer. But when we believe that they're not fragile, they're not teacups that are going to break in a million pieces, but they're anti-fragile. Mm-hmm. They're like, they're like the immune system that only can work when it gets germs thrown at it. They're like muscles that atrophy unless you work them hard. Right. Kids' emotions are that way and they can do it. 
and we can get it wrong and then we can, and then we can make it better. So that's, that also is at the heart of what I'm trying, trying to convey um, with these, with these kind of principles of listen, let it go if it's not working. Mm -hmm. And then I'll stop now because I'd love, I think we're about at time, but I will say briefly the third step, which I think anxiety is really good at, which I was, um, I told that long story to illustrate was that it points us to purpose. It points us to what we care about. Mm-hmm. If not always, but a lot of the time to, to what matters to us in the world and what we hope for. So that if we can say, okay, I'm ready to turn back to my anxiety. What can I do with it? We hitch it to purpose. We mm-hmm. hitch it to what we care about because that's what it evolved to help us with. Right. To navigate the uncertainty, to bridge the gap between where we are now and where we want to be in that uncertain future. So connect it to what matters to you, whether it's a big purpose, like working on climate change or gun violence or a small purpose. Like I just want to make sure that we, I have more, I make more time to connect with my best friend every week Mm -hmm. because that Mm -hmm. fuels me, whatever that purpose is that gives us meaning and, 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 and makes us feel more ourselves in the world, leverage anxiety to help, to help you do that. And that's going to, and that's going to be how, how we can really be anxious in the right way. Right. What a beautiful world it would be if we could all use this anxiety towards really uh, manifesting our purpose. I, I have one of my, one of my many favorite things that your uh, quotes in here. And you said, you're speaking to your son. And your son, Kavi, asked, how can we be anxious and hopeful about the same thing? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And the answer you gave him was, we're only anxious when we care. And there is so much to care about. That just really speaks to everything you were just saying, as well as I'm hoping our audience can really take away that we do anxiety the right way. Thank you so much for this time, this one-on-one time I got with you. Thank you so much, Diana. What a lovely conversation this has been. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle Demetio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.